Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we've got a bit of a potpourri approach to virtual legality. We've got a couple things that I want to talk about, one of which was requested that I talk about to me on social media, and that is the Xbox Live community guidelines that they uh, put forth and put out there uh, about a week ago. Uh, and that some people have some questions on about whether or not they're effective, whether or not they are overbroad in certain respects. And in reading them, I think that there are a couple of instances where Xbox has probably gone maybe one or two steps too far, and also the fact that they are depicted in that community guidelines standards as guidelines and not rules reflects on some of the discussions we've had on virtual legality in the past, including in respect of Sony and PlayStation and their guidelines for what is acceptable on their platform as well and why oftentimes under the law, under rules, under the way we think of things and how they operate in society, guidelines are perhaps not as great for consumers, for the folks that aren't making the guidelines, uh, as they are for the platform holders that in many respects we'd prefer to have rules hard and fast that we could know when we're violating, know when we're complying with, and that guidelines add a layer of ambiguity that allows platform holders or any other kind of service provider that does have guidelines instead of rules a great deal of power and authority to make your life difficult if they decide that they want to. And so we're going to have a discussion about that. That's probably going to take up the bulk of this episode. But before we got there, I wanted to reflect a little bit more on Games to Service. Electronic Arts put out uh, a few statements regarding their year, regarding Anthem, uh, over this past week. Uh, and I wanted to talk about a little about what they said, because uh, if you've been following Virtual Legality, if you've been following this channel, you know last week I did a few episodes on uh, Accursed Farms and Ross Scott's claim that Games as a Service was effectively fraud. Uh, and I said under the law, it, it at least under American law, it, it really isn't insofar as people get to agree to whatever licenses they want to agree with, uh, even if I think that the practice uh, in in reality can negatively impact certainly the preservation of games, but even kind of the current interaction with games. And I think what we're seeing in games as a service, in the use of influencers over press conferences, in this pretty significant shift that's happening in the game industry today, we're seeing a change, uh, and Electronic Arts really did speak to that a little bit when they talked about Anthem and what they had done wrong with it and what making games looks like today. So we're looking at an article now that's from PC Gamer. It's called Electronic Arts Says the Old Way of Releasing Games Doesn't Work Anymore. With the subtitle, The Anthem Experience Has Apparently Led EA to Reconsider How It Launches Large-Scale Online Games. It says, Electronic Arts acknowledged during its quarter four 2019 financial results conference call that Anthem, which it expected to be one of its biggest releases of the year, did not live up to expectations. Despite all its problems, EA reaffirmed support for both the game and developer Bioware, but it also said that the experience has led it to realize that it needs to start handling large live service game releases differently than it has in the past. And before we get into the quotes, I think if you've followed this channel or if you've just followed the gaming industry in general, you saw Electronic Arts deal with two significant launches uh, almost simultaneously, and one was very successful, and one was, let's say, less so. And the one that was very successful was Apex Legends, which went through what I would call the, the new form of, of, of press release, new form of marketing for a video game, which essentially meant that it had none. It was a complete surprise to most in the industry, and what they had done to market it was that they flew out a number of influencers, these folks that have Twitch streams or Instagrams or YouTube channels, uh, and they flew them out to play it 
And then they started getting people hyped just from those influencers saying things on Twitter. And you can see a virtual legality episode I did on whether or not that was entirely compliant with Federal Trade Commission rules because the influencers aren't always great about disclosing the fact that they were flown out and they got special treatment. And so whatever they're saying about Apex Legends or whatever else they are influencing people on, uh, they need to disclose that they have that relationship. And they're not always great about doing that. Uh, But that's kind of a different topic. The point is that Apex Legends had a massively successful marketing campaign. They got those influencers out there and Apex Legends took off immediately. Now, even Apex Legends is having some difficulty sustaining its population base. You're seeing articles now about whether or not that population is falling off, whether or not it is rampant with cheating uh, and some other problems that basically every games as a service or every battle royale or free-to-play game faces at some point in its life cycle if it is popular. But that's pretty normal. At the same time that they launched uh, Apex Legends, or very near to that time, they launched Anthem. And this was at the end of February. And they launched it in a very standard way. As a matter of fact, they had even a VIP program that had a beta uh, and then an open beta. And then they finally launched it. Uh, And they went through a number of E3s where they showed videos of it. They had behind-the-scenes documentaries. They had blog posts. They had everybody aware of Anthem's existence before it launched. Uh, But Anthem is not like other Bioware games. It's much closer in nature to something like Apex Legends because it has this long-term, long-tail approach to gaming. They want you to be playing it for 100 hours or 200 hours. We're going to see that in this quote that we're about to read from the EA CEO. And because of that, EA is looking at this and saying, well, we shouldn't be marketing, we shouldn't be selling games that have this games-as-a-service element, this long-tail of potential playability and saleability uh, in the same way that we sell something that is just a one-off game, something like a, a God of War or Spider-Man or something that doesn't have those uh, games-as-a-service elements. Uh, and that's what they're reflecting on when it comes to Anthem. Obviously, from the number of videos that I've done on Anthem and especially on the communications from Bioware to its customer base, I think there are greater issues there. I think there are issues with selling a product that maybe wasn't fully cooked. There are issues with talking to people, talking down to them about what they don't like about the Anthem experience. And so I think Electronic Arts, when they say this, when they say things are changing in terms of marketing, is perhaps playing a little bit of sleight of hand with what's actually happening with Anthem. On the internet, you might hear this uh, argument as something along the lines of, well, you need to deliver a better game or something like that. I'm not sure it's entirely that simple, but I'm also not sure that just because Anthem is a different type of game, it demands an entirely different approach uh, to marketing it. Although certainly influencers and that entire kind of avenue of marketing a video game is pretty young, pretty new, and obviously can be massively successful for the right product and in the right, uh, in front of the right people. So let's take a look at the quote. Andrew Wilson, the CEO of EA, says, The reality is it's not just an EA challenge. It's an industry-wide challenge, referencing the difficulties of creating and operating large-scale open-world games like Anthem. You're moving from what was initially a Bioware game, which would be somewhere between 40 and 80 hours of offline play, to 40 to 80 hours of offline play, plus 100 or 200 or 300 hours of Elder Game, endgame content, that happens with millions of other players at scale online that they have to keep it up, they have to keep live services going, and that's all true if they want to sell this product on this basis. The article continues, that obviously has an impact on development and QA processes, but EA is also examining how it presents new games to potential audiences with an eye towards managing expectations. So stop there for just a second. That's an interesting thing, right? That's, that's again, kind of a bit of sleight of hand from a PR marketing speak perspective. It's saying, well, maybe Anthem isn't... It wasn't received as we would have liked because we didn't properly manage expectations about what it was. It's not that it was bad or deficient in some way. It's that we didn't properly communicate what it was. And people expected a Bioware experience, which would be natural coming from Bioware. And we didn't properly communicate that. Again, I think that's playing nice for the shareholders, playing nice for the financial earnings call. uh, But it is true in certain respects. Certainly, when you got into Anthem, you, you didn't expect it to be exactly what it was, which was this kind of grafting of single-player game onto multiplayer game, onto shared world shooter, and they didn't do a great job of explaining what it was. Uh, obviously, the Kotaku article that Jason Schreier did, that I also did a virtual legality video on, dives deep into exactly what happened with the development of Anthem, 
uh, to kind of arrive at this point. I highly recommend both that article and my virtual legality episode if you're interested in that topic. But suffice it to say, Anthem wasn't terribly well received. I believe it's Bioware's lowest rated game in some time. Uh, although it's possible that Mass Effect Andromeda is lower rated. I would have to look at those Metacritics. It's, it's pretty close. Wilson said that in Asia, major online games generally go through a soft launch and multiple community tests before everything goes live, which enables EA to get a better idea of how they'll behave at scale. In the West, however, major publishers have stuck with older conventions, a drip-feed approach to marketing to build up the appetite and excitement for the game that leads straight into release. As games have gotten bigger, that system isn't working as well as it has done in years gone by. So what you should expect from us is that it's not just about changing the development processes in the game. It's not just about changing the QA processes, quality assurance processes in the game. Although both of those things are being changed dramatically inside our organization right now. But it also comes down to changing how we launch games, Wilson said. Again, stopping on this quote, I think when he says these things are being changed dramatically, it's worthwhile to note that these things really are being changed dramatically as best we can tell from the outside looking in. And that is what has been referenced in the layoffs that have happened at Activision and Electronic Arts are these massive changes in what is being internally focused on at these companies. Whether or not you agree with that is an entirely separate question, but there's no question that Electronic Arts and Activision are completely re-strategizing what a number of their internal development focal points look like. And so I think that's what this is a reference to, that they are changing their development process. They are changing their QA process. He continues, you should expect that we'll start to test things like soft launches, the same things you see in the mobile space right now. So I was involved in the mobile space for some time with my own game company, with my brother. uh, And one of the things that happens in that space, if you're not familiar with it, is they pick a jurisdiction, they pick a country that they don't think is necessarily going to have as much media presence or as much uh, ability to get negative news out there. And they soft launch a version of the game that they know isn't quite done uh, to see how people react, to see what's a problem, what isn't a problem, and to fix that up before they launch in whatever their major consumer uh, jurisdictions are going to be. So oftentimes you see uh, launches that are soft done for mobile games in Canada. You can limit it uh, in the iOS store to, hey, we're only going to be available in Canada and they're going to get this game early. We're going to get feedback. We're going to get reviews on this version. We're going to see what people think of this game. And then we're going to be able to make changes. We're going to be able to do additional development and then release it in the United States. And so what uh, Electronic Arts, what, what Wilson is saying here is that we're going to start to see more of that, more soft launches in, in areas where uh, people could get them early, could reflect on them. EA could fix them up before going wide, and essentially what that winds up being is a kind of crowdsourced quality assurance, right? I think everybody that's been familiar with the internet for a long time knows that one of the things that is rightly criticized for game companies is that they go out with a lot of bugs, and they fix them up pretty quick. Uh, And the question is always, how could you not find them? But a quality assurance team, even if it's huge, is 100 people, uh, is not a million people playing something on the internet and hammering on it from all different corners of the product. And so that process really is useful as a kind of, oh, this doesn't work or this breaks in this specific way and we can fix it when it goes out there. And so it's useful to us to have it go out there to 100,000 people to fix these things and then to have it go out to a million or 10 million or what have you. So I think soft launches are a good idea, although I do think it's potentially problematic for whatever areas are receiving the soft launch if they're otherwise paying full price or full freight for whatever it is that they're buying. It'll be interesting to see the direction that Electronic Arts goes with these kinds of concepts in the major console and PC space because they aren't that prevalent right now. Outside of it's slightly analogous to early access, which has products that go out on Steam or on Origin or on other places that are noted as not being completed at all and that might not ever be completed. Uh, one, of the, one of the major issues with early access is uh, if the company decides they didn't get enough early access, quote unquote, pre-orders, they can just stop production and you get what you get. And Steam really has gone uh, a number of steps to kind of disclose to people that are potentially going to buy an early access game that, hey, you need to, you need to be in love or you need to like or you need to be okay with buying exactly what it is that it is today when you give us your money because it might not ever change. It might not ever be better. That single player campaign that they're promising might not ever arrive. And 
as long as people are aware that that's the situation, I'm okay with it. But I think just like when we're talking about games as a service with the Cursed Farms or when we're talking about other concepts in the business and law of video games or information technology, disclosure is the tonic to these kinds of things. People need to know what they're getting into. And so it will be very interesting to see what a soft launch looks like in the Electronic Arts New World Order. Continuing with the quote, and it also comes down to changing how we communicate with players. Our entire marketing organization now is moving out of presentation mode, press conferences, slideshows, telling people what it is that they are doing uh, from a kind of presentational seminar-based approach, and into conversation mode and changing how we interact with players over time. I think that's where we're going to leave this article so you can see the rest. There's a couple of places where I didn't read, and I think it's well worth the click. This is a PC Gamer article. But that notion of changing the way we're going to talk to players is very interesting to me for exactly the reasons we talked about at the top of this video. The difference in marketing from presentation to conversation very much sounds to me like an increased emphasis on influencers and on kind of that guerrilla marketing of just flying people in and having them talk directly to people. And it's really no surprise at all. We are in the age of the influencer. They are clearly more effective than most ways of communicating things to potential players and to the potential player base. And so I think what you're seeing here is Electronic Arts saying, hey, we are going to stop speaking from on high about what our game is. We're going to have it when we're going to deliver it. We're going to bring in influencers. We're going to bring in people that are invested in our ecosystem and in our gameplay types and in our developers. And we're going to have those conversations with them. I assume this means that they're going to continue to uh, focus on their Game Changers program, which is essentially their... Uh, paid uh, version of having people that are familiar with whatever games they're talking about come in and talk to the developers about what they like and what they don't like. Most often you see this with Madden, uh, the, the football series where they bring in uh, big-time Madden players to come in and say, hey, what is it that really doesn't work in our game and, and help lead the development in terms of what they want to see in the game. That to me is what a kind of conversation mode is likely meaning when Electronic Arts talks about it, but it will be very interesting to see and it will be very interesting to see in light of the issues that they had with Anthem, in light of the issues that they had with a number of their other games. 2017 was not a bright spot for Electronic Arts, and that was the loot box fiasco where they tried to add all of these kind of microtransaction gaming devices into their video games. And there was an uproar. There was a giant pushback against them. And it's one of the areas where I think you can really see that voting with your wallet, complaining on the Internet calling electronic arts for bad practices really does have an effect on these major corporations. It's one of the reasons why I much more uh, prefer to advocate for consumer action uh, rather than illegality and things of that nature. I don't think what they're doing should be illegal. It should just be frowned upon, shunned, and they should be called out for actions that the player base doesn't like. But that's electronic arts. That was really the short portion of this video because I wanted to touch on some of the things that we've touched on at length in this video series, Virtual Legality. And that's games as a service, that's the age of the influencer, that's Anthem in general and communications issues, and clearly Electronic Arts is not happy with Anthem, is probably not happy with Bioware. And the reasons for that are myriad, and you can absolutely add some in the comments to this video. I would be happy to discuss them with you. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, Electronic Arts is starting to see the forest for the trees and see that the new world order in terms of marketing a video game is upon them. And I suspect strongly, Electronic Arts has generally been good at kind of being flexible on these kinds of things, that they will be one of the companies that really does embrace the age of the influencer and come out on top with the way they market their video games. Whether or not that's a good thing for the industry in general is, again, an open debate. But I think Electronic Arts will succeed at the end of the day, but it might take them a little bit of time to get there. That's Electronic Arts. Now let's talk about Xbox Live. So I am looking at an article from Polygon called Xbox Live's New Standards Try to Define Acceptable Trash Talk. Bottom line, keep your chat focused on the game, not the player. It's interesting. I looked at a number of these articles online. Again, I got a couple of tips on my social media uh, to discuss this because some people had some questions with how they were being enforced and what exactly it was that they said. And it was interesting to me when I went to look up some articles on this, how it was being treated in the games media. The biggest item was always this concept of trash talk. I think it's because it makes the funniest kind of addition to the rules that Microsoft put forth. They actually talk some trash talk in their actual legal rules, which is an unusual site. So I think that's why 
uh, games journalists flocked to that particular issue. But there's a lot more in there that is also interesting. Uh, so really what I wanted to do is I wanted to highlight this article. I'm going to put a link in this to the in the description of this video. Uh, but what I wanted to really highlight was what happens uh, in respect of guidelines versus rules. A and that's the last statement in this article. It says, the update tries to give as many real examples of good and bad behavior without restricting them to hard and fast rules. A statement from a Microsoft representative noted that the standards are not a new set of rules, but are a call to action that empowers every player to evaluate their behavior and adjust accordingly in order to be a force for good. So that is pure uh, PR management. And one of the things that's interesting about that is, yes, okay, so Microsoft wants to foster a better environment on their Xbox Live service. That's understood and that's laudable. As a matter of fact, if I were running Xbox Live or if I were running another network infrastructure, I would want to start to push back against what I saw as negative behavior. That's absolutely fine. But when you create more community guidelines, when you create more things that at the end of the day can penalize people for violating them, it's not really empowering so much as it's creating another framework upon which Microsoft can hold other people down, that they can penalize them for doing things that Microsoft doesn't like. That is entirely within Microsoft's rights. So don't read me wrong there. It is, however, kind of the reverse of what they describe it as here in terms of empowering every player. Limits, rules, guidelines, laws, they don't empower people. They restrict people, and that's fine. Uh, but don't let them flip it around on you uh, just based on their PR statements. But they, the, the main thing I wanted to focus on was that, the PR statement of it all, and also the note that these are guidelines and they are not rules. And we're going to see why that is, because there is a set of rules, and these are essentially interpretations of those rules. If you followed virtual legality, you've seen a similar circumstance that we've talked about on this very channel with respect to the Federal Trade Communications Act and how the Federal Trade Commission starts to impose rules based on these broad kind of precepts in the law and that the law doesn't actually say that. It says that this other body can impose rules, can interpret the laws. And so this is a kind of similar concept. This obviously isn't the government. This is a private entity. But what they've got here is essentially a services agreement that you do formally agree to that are the rules that you agree to when you have a Microsoft account, when you have an Xbox Live account. And then they have interpretations of what it is that you just signed. And that's what the community standards guidelines are. So that's really where this gets interesting. But again, here's the Polygon article. I will link it in the description. Let's take a look at what these new standards actually are. So here's the document. It says community standards for Xbox. We built Xbox Live for people like you, for players from all walks of life, everywhere in the world who all want the same thing, a place to play and have fun. We need your help keeping the Xbox online community safe and fun for everyone. To this end, we've created the following community standards. Standards is always a fun word. It's not quite rules. It's not even really guidelines necessarily, but it is ambiguous enough that they can impose restrictions on people and then they can interpret them later to see if penalties are warranted. Consider these standards a roadmap for contributing to this incredible globe-spanning community. Remember, Xbox Live is your community. We all bring something unique, and that uniqueness is worth protecting. Uh, then it goes on to talk about shared values and, and what everybody uh, likes about uh, Xbox Live. And then we start to get into this. I've highlighted a few areas if you're watching this on video rather than listening to it on podcast. But I've highlighted a few areas primarily to point out the instances where the language used is not particularly quantifiable. Uh, I mean to say that the language is clearly something that will be interpreted by Microsoft personnel and that they will have a significant amount of leeway in which to interpret, that there's enough ambiguity there that they can decide on whether something crosses the line. They'll know it when they see it. And like we talked about with respect to PlayStation and their guidelines for what acceptable material is from their developers, that's always a bit of a problem for somebody that's going to be acting. It tends to chill the, the speech or the actions or whatever it is that you're looking at because people don't know where the line is. They don't want to get anywhere near the line. Most people, some people jump right over the line and that's fine uh, and they'll get penalized. But for a lot of people, they don't know where the line is. And as we'll see when we get to the end of the discussion, there are significant, significant penalties if you jump over this line and Microsoft decides to penalize you and they decide to penalize you harshly. There can be significant problems for folks that that happens to. 
Um, so let's take a look at some of those bits of language. The first section is on conduct. It says, a little bit of trash talk is okay, but keep it clean. When we're looking at this from a legal perspective, the stuff that jumps out at me is a little bit of trash talk is okay, but presumably not a lot. And where the line is between a little bit and a lot is something that Xbox is going to determine. Then they say, but keep it clean. Cleanliness here is undefined. It's not anything that can be conceptually defined under the law or under rules without a capital C and a definition of some kind. We can kind of assume we understand what it means, and we'll get into the examples that they give, uh, but it's not something that's otherwise determinable by the individual. So this, again, is another area where Xbox has the authority to decide, oh, that trash talk, it might have been a little bit, but it wasn't clean, and so we're going to suspend you for a day or whatever it is that they decide to do. In terms of content, they say that they want content that is informative, helpful, funny, or, or interesting content that contributes positively. They want it that, to be suited for a wide audience. They want you to remember that mature content that makes sense in a game might not be appropriate elsewhere on Xbox, and that you need to think twice about saying something hurtful about someone else's content, playing style, or choices. All of this language, just like what we read above, doesn't quite rise to the level of if you don't do this, you will be penalized. And certainly, Xbox has the incentive to not penalize people. So when we talk about these kinds of things, when we talk about the rights that businesses reserve for themselves under their contracts, under their licenses, it's important to note what their incentives are. That's really the most important thing to think about whenever you're thinking about contract rights or just general intersocietal relationships is what are the incentives of the various parties. Xbox wants you to spend money on, your, on their service. The best way to get you to spend money on their service is to have you on their service. They don't want to ban people if they can avoid it. And so all, while these things are broad, it's worth noting that they probably don't want to impose these in a particularly broad way, but it's still worth noting and still worth being concerned about because it only takes one person to be made an example of if that example being made is you when you don't think that the rules are clear or that they are consistently applied. And so that's how we get into these conversations. That's why we wind up talking about them on things like virtual legality, because Microsoft is going to impose these rules on you. And whether or not that makes sense is, is part of the question. Going further, we get to the actual description of the community standards. But one thing that I was uh, interested in is where these things come from. Uh, this is a brand new document. This isn't something that I have seen before. I, I think everything that has been reported on it suggests that it has come into being in the last little while. And they say, if you've seen the Microsoft Services Agreement, the following rules probably look familiar. They may sound a bit like legalese, uh, you know, present company excluded, of course. But bear with us, upholding these standards is critical to maintaining a community where everyone can have fun. People differ about what seems fun, and conflicts sometimes occur, but while plenty of conflicts can be worked out between players, there are nevertheless some things we can't tolerate. In each section, you'll find examples how the Microsoft Services Agreement's Code of Conduct relates to Xbox Live. That's the important sentence about how this works from a legal perspective, how these documents interact. In each section, you'll find examples showing how the Microsoft Services Agreement's Code of Conduct relates to Xbox Live. So, when we're talking about what has actually been imposed on you, it's the Microsoft Services Agreement. So let's take a look at that. This is the update effective May 1st, 2018. This is the most recent one that's showing on the internet. And we get to code of conduct in the Microsoft Services Agreement. This is what you agreed to when you created an Xbox Live account. And it says code of conduct. By agreeing to these terms, you're agreeing that when using the services, you will follow these rules. Don't do anything illegal. Don't engage in activity that exploits, harms, or threatens to harm children. Don't send spam. Don't engage in activity that is fraudulent. Don't circumvent restrictions on access to the services. Don't engage in activity that is harmful to you, the services, or others. Don't infringe upon the rights of others. Don't engage in activity that violates the privacy of others. And don't help others break these rules. Those are the 10 subtopics under the agreement to the code of conduct that is for all Microsoft services. And so that's what we've agreed to when we have an Xbox Live account. It's very broad, uh, but it has some kind of understandability. Don't do things that are illegal. Don't exploit, harm, or threaten to harm children. Don't send spam. These are things that can at least be interpreted on a reasonable basis. What the Xbox community standards have done is that they've gone through each of those sections and they have broadened out what they think is applicable for Xbox Live in particular. So they say, keep it legal. That 
that relates entirely to the you won't do anything illegal section of the code of conduct. It says Xbox Live is available in all countries all over the world, in countries all over the world. And it's important that people of all backgrounds feel safe and comfortable on our platform. To help ensure this, we must respect local laws and remove content or behavior that advocates or promotes illegal activities. So you can't build a club around illegal drug use. Can't, uh, can't make messages that encourage underage drinking. You can't do these things that are otherwise illegal. This is not one of the areas where they broaden their, their existing services agreement too terribly much. It's all understandable and it makes sense. Then we get to two, do your part to keep everyone safe. This relates to don't engage in any activity that exploits, harms, or threatens to harm children. That's in the code of conduct. They say, for example, don't threaten someone with physical assault, don't message other players homophobic slurs, make a club grounded in ethnic hatred, uh, negatively call out another player, post insults in their feed, use sexual slurs. And their description of this says, to keep Xbox Live a place where everyone can have fun, we can't allow behavior or content designed to explore, exploit, harm, or threaten anyone, children, adults, or otherwise. Now, that's interesting from a legal perspective. I, I don't know that it matters that much. I don't think that anybody should be trying to do those things to people of any age group. But when I read the Code of Conduct and I read, don't engage in any activity that exploits, harms, or threatens to harm children, in general, I'm applying the to harm children to all of exploits, harms, or threatens. That when we were agreeing to this code of conduct in its initial instance, we were agreeing in particular to protect children. And that this didn't necessarily apply to adults or to non-child actors. Which makes sense. There are a number of laws and a number of rules and regulations in various jurisdictions that are specifically designed to protect children. Particularly those under the age of 13 in most jurisdictions. And that, that makes a lot of sense. But you see here the first instance where Xbox appears to be broadening what the interpretation of that code of conduct is uh, in a manner that maybe isn't entirely binding legally if you were to be forced to argue the question of whether these kinds of activities uh, were actually prohibited under the services agreement that you entered into and not this internet site that details how they're interpreting that services agreement. As a side note to this, you see how they have framed what it is that they're describing. They have a sentence that describes how they're interpreting the section. And then when we get to these bullet points, they are listed as examples. Uh, in a legal document, we would refer to this as a, a listing of, of examples or uh, something that illustrates the concept or an umbrella concept that they're trying to apply. It is not meant to be exhaustive. And so when they say, for example, don't do these things, it doesn't necessarily say if you're not doing any of these things, you're fine because they're reserving the right to apply the sentence that they've got as their main interpretation before that example list against whoever they want to enforce it against. And that's potentially another problem with guidelines over rules when you've got these kinds of broad interpretations of a contract that already has broad language and that may be broadened by something like this, by this internet site. So it becomes a bit of a problem for trying to comply with. If Microsoft just suddenly out of the blue decided you were a bad actor, they could use a lot of this language to harm you in a way that maybe wouldn't be deemed fair by the person who the hammer had fallen on. Uh, they say turn that spam into substance. Remember, this is the rule that says uh, don't send spam. Spam is unwanted or unsolicited bulk email, postings, contact requests, SMS, or instant messages. And we see here the main problem with this stance, again, when we're talking about legality, is they've got all these provisos. I've highlighted them here, but you can't regularly offer prizes. You can't use frequent giveaways. You can't repetitively message or repeatedly share or send repeated game invites with no real quantification given for regularly or frequent or repetitively or repeatedly. And so that gives a great deal of discretion to Xbox to determine that there is an issue. In terms of keeping your content clean, they say you can't send harassing or abusive messages. You can't flood chat with music. Uh, and then we start getting into what it means to do trash talk. And again, the rule in the actual code of conduct is don't publicly display or use the services to share inappropriate content or material uh, involving bad things, essentially. And this broadens out to talking about trash talk. And this is what we actually saw in the Polygon article that we just looked at. And it says, a little trash talk is an expected part of competitive multiplayer action, and that's not a bad thing. Okay, that's an interesting part of the rule. They're trying to say trash talk is generally okay. But trash talk, as they define it, includes any lighthearted banter or bragging that focuses on the game at hand 
and encourages healthy competition. Harassment, uh, by comparison to trash talk, includes any negative behavior that's personalized, disruptive, or likely to make someone feel unwelcome or unsafe. When I read this as a lawyer, it's unclear exactly how uh, it would interact if you've got lighthearted banter that is bragging that otherwise makes someone else feel unwelcome. Those two areas seem to be places where trash talk can be harassment and harassment can be trash talk and depend entirely on the listener, which in this case would be the player that you're talking to, but also the Xbox representative that would be interpreting what you said. And so I think when you look at these things as broadly as they are, even when they give these examples, it is potentially problematic. I highlighted a bit of language here that says to qualify as harassment, the behavior doesn't have to be drawn out or persistent. So it can be a one-off event in which you think you had lighthearted banter and the other person legitimately felt unwelcome because you were bragging and telling them to get out of the game. And that could potentially be an issue. Now, they give examples here that say that that's basically okay. You're allowed to say, get destroyed. Can't believe you thought you were on my level. Or that was some serious potato aim. Get wrecked. It's it's unclear to me how that isn't any negative behavior uh, that makes someone feel unwelcome uh, or unsafe. Uh, But that's not up to me. When they talk about things that aren't allowed, they've got uh, sexual threats. Uh, Profanity seems to change whether or not something goes too far, including the statement, get wrecked trash, which is interesting because trash talk can't use the word trash. And if you use trash, it might delve into harassment. Very interesting. Obviously, this is not an area where this example list is exhaustive, that obviously there's going to be a ton of different ways that trash talk can occur. And Microsoft is trying to reserve for itself a very broad authority to determine when something goes over the line. And maybe that's fine. I certainly don't enjoy multiplayer games on a lot of levels because there are so many people that are making them miserable experiences and I entirely back Microsoft or Sony or whomever in trying to make things a little bit more uh, genteel, a little bit more uh, fun for everybody involved. So I, I don't necessarily disagree with this general push for these kinds of things, but as a lawyer and as someone that likes to have bright lines to know where the line is, I do have a problem with these kinds of broad-based approach, which just don't make a ton of sense to me, even while I'm reading them uh, and interpreting them as kind of a legal basis. It says, be yourself, but not at the expense of others. It's not cool to post something that keeps others from having positive experiences. Now, I don't want to get into politics. I don't want to get into the various culture wars on the internet or elsewhere. But when you look at this list, you can immediately see what the problem is with this kind of concept. Be yourself, but not at the expense of others. Don't make provocative religious comments. Name a club after a highly controversial figure. Use your activity feed as a platform to promote controversial politics. Now, I have a number of websites that I like to go to, a number of forums that I like to participate in, a number of sites that Hoaglaw sponsors. And one of the things that I generally like when I'm looking for sponsorship, when I'm looking for a place to go, is just a general ban on politics in general. I think that's a lot easier than Xbox trying to reserve for itself the right to determine what's a provocative religious comment, to determine what's a controversial figure, to determine what is controversial politics. Microsoft doesn't want to be in that business. If I were their lawyer, I would have gotten rid of all of this. Hey, it's Xbox. It's a video game platform. Don't put this kind of stuff on there at all. And we're not going to be in the business of determining what's provocative, what's controversial or or otherwise. Um, This kind of concept, this kind of stepping on either side of the line, I think is going to be a significant problem for them and is probably going to result in some news articles in the near future if they try to impose a restriction or a suspension or a ban on someone that has provocative religious comments or a controversial politics when they're allowing other politics, which Microsoft has deemed to be non-controversial. And so I look at that and say, okay, well, I mean, it's well within your rights, but I don't think it's a good idea. And I do think it invites problem descriptions of what you're actually doing. So this is one of those areas where I think Xbox probably stepped in it the wrong way. uh, And just the kind of notion of be yourself, but not at the expense of others is a little bit 
um, icky. And so I would have advised them to not go in this particular direction with describing what is clearly a legitimate interest to make sure that you don't have political discussions, you don't have religious discussions on Xbox because there are people that are going to react very negatively to anything that everybody is controversial to someone else. And so you don't want to have that involved with your playing of Horizon or whatever it is that you're enjoying on the Xbox service. They also say you need to make stuff when you're making content that's suitable for all audiences. You can't upload screenshots that include mature sexual content. Or again, when we're kind of highlighting these issues where Microsoft has this broad authority, share pictures that may be considered distasteful or inappropriate. Again, you're looking at a concept for guidelines and standards. May be considered is about as broad as we could write this as lawyers. It's not, it doesn't even have to be considered. It may be considered by a hypothetical person. Something that you post could be deemed distasteful. And it doesn't even have to be in your jurisdiction. It could be an entirely different country across the world, but that's where it's distasteful. And Microsoft could penalize you if they deigned to do so. And so this is another area where this kind of broad authority is potentially problematic, even though I think their heart is in the right place and they're trying to clean up their Xbox Live service. Um, they've also got... A references here to double entendre and things that are people trying to trick the gamertag pictures, the names, and the, the way they describe things in their actions. And the basic word here that they use is that Microsoft reserves the right essentially to penalize when they deem something is inappropriate, an inappropriate play on words, inappropriate dual meanings. And inappropriate doesn't have any legal uh, teeth to it. It's just a decision made by Microsoft about what's appropriate versus what's inappropriate. And Again, when we're talking about the actual section that this refers to in the Code of Conduct, it's, it's exactly the same thing. So this isn't them broadening what they're saying exactly, but it is worthwhile to note that it isn't a terribly useful standard for people to rely upon. The, the Code of Conduct says you won't share inappropriate content or material. And then they give examples that are nudity, bestiality, pornography, offensive language, graphic violence, or criminal activity. Outside of language, all of those are what we would consider kind of heightened things to be worried about and not necessarily double entendre. And so this is broadening or at least uh, focusing on a broader interpretation of what the actual code of conduct says in a manner that as a lawyer, I would have preferred to have seen actually be as part of a new contract that you're actually agreeing to these things rather than interpreting an existing contract that maybe doesn't do exactly what you needed to do if you're Microsoft. Then we get into some of the areas where uh, people really flagged for me potential problems. We're starting to get into those concepts that they didn't think that the Microsoft Code of Conduct covered at all. And that starts with Section 5 here, which is fraud. So it says, in the Code of Conduct, don't engage in activity that is fraudulent, false, or misleading. Asking for money under false pretenses, impersonating someone else, manipulating the services to increase play count, or affect rankings, ratings, or comments. Those are examples. Those are EG under the code of conduct. And then this is broadened here that says at its first point, which is before the example list, this also applies to trying to make money on Xbox Live in unapproved ways, since doing so bypasses safeguards that exist to help everyone safe, to help keep everyone safe and financially secure. I think reasonable minds can differ on whether that's applicable or not. But the things that I highlighted here are that they say that you can't trade game lessons for compensation. They've also flagged Xbox gift cards, which I think are a stronger case for them. But they've broadened it to say you can't trade game lessons for compensation. And it's difficult for me to see how, in any respect, if the contract is clear and obvious and two people are interested in entering into it, trading game lessons, somebody sitting in the room with you and teaching you how to play something better, for compensation is at any way fraudulent or in any way bypasses safeguards or in any way helps make financial transactions on Xbox Live more dangerous. Similarly, buying a game from an unauthorized seller seems overly broad. And it's unclear what authorized means in this context. In any event, when you turn a video game back into GameStop and they sell it as a pre-owned game, are they unauthorized for that secondary sale? When you buy a game from a friend, uh, or when the library decides to clear out its shelves and sell off its video game stock so it can replace it with new stock. Are they unauthorized sellers for this purpose? Or are they merely referring to first sale doctrine and imposition of laws and so everybody that's got a copy of a game is an authorized seller and then it 
becomes unclear what an unauthorized seller is unless they just specifically mean you won't buy stolen copies of the games, in which case you could have said you can't buy stolen copies of the games. This is one of those areas where you say, hmm, okay, I'm starting to get a little concerned that you're broadening this out too much. Then we get to bullet point, try to get out of policy refunds or compensation from Xbox support. They have this under the category of fraud. If you go and say you are mad with Xbox support and you would like compensation of some kind or a refund of some kind, and it is quote unquote out of policy, which are the policies that are established purely by Microsoft for this purpose and which are very limited in terms of refunds and I don't think are existent in terms of compensation, then you could potentially be in violation of their fraud provision despite the fact that you are just advocating for yourself and trying to get the best possible result for what is probably a bad act on the part of someone or Microsoft itself. I will tell you a story. I had my Microsoft Xbox Live account stolen probably about 2012 or so. It got stolen uh, and you could see people buying, I think it was FIFA Ultimate Team cards or something along those lines. I reported it to Microsoft and the security questions had been changed to Spanish. Uh, And so as soon as I couldn't answer them because they were in Spanish, uh, the guy understood what had happened and they understood that it had been stolen and I was able to verify my account. And Microsoft was unable to get me any of my account licenses back and they were unable to do anything for me. They tried to give me Xbox Live cards for a while. They tried to give me gift dollars on Xbox Live for a while, uh, but they were never able to restore my account. And this was over a number of calls, a number of emails, a number of Uh, discussions that I had with Xbox where I became increasingly agitated and said, you have to do something for me because I've itemized what I had purchased. And we're talking about real significant money. I tend to buy things digitally. So my accounts tend to be pretty fulsomely maintained. And if they were to turn around and say, you lose your Xbox account because you are trying to get compensation from Xbox support, uh, there would have been a lawsuit. And I think this is one of those areas, much like when we talk about other areas of overreach by corporations. I think one of the examples that I like to use is if you're a sports fan and you watch the World Series or you watch the Super Bowl or you watch an NFL broadcast and you get that commercial in the middle of the broadcast that says essentially any accounts or depictions of this game uh, that are unauthorized by the express consent of the NFL or the MLB or whomever are prohibited. And that's clearly overreach. You can't possibly prohibit someone giving an account of the game that they watched on TV. This is one of those types of areas where try to get compensation from Xbox support uh, is, is not fraudulent in and of itself. If you want to add something in here that says, you know, try to defraud Xbox uh, and try to to steal from them through lies and deceit or what have you. Uh, that's a that's a separate question. Um, but I think it's worthwhile to note, especially when we get a little bit further in this list, that this is one of those areas where they're clearly trying to broaden things in a way that most certainly does not empower the players uh, of the Xbox Live service or the Microsoft ecosystem. The last bullet I highlighted here was charge another player to help them complete a level uh, in a game. And to me, this is pretty similar to trade game lessons. If somebody wants to pay me money to help them complete a level in a game, presuming most likely I'm sitting in the room uh, or can otherwise have access to their game to help them complete that level, I think that that's, I think that that's fine. I don't see any problem with that whatsoever. Uh, and I certainly don't see it as a fraudulent activity, presuming that everybody knows what they're doing. I wouldn't personally pay money to to someone to teach me how to play a game. I wouldn't pay money to have someone complete a level in a game for me, uh, but if they do so, I don't see how it's fraudulent unless there's an element of deceit. Um, in six, they say where there are limits, there are uh, there is a reason, uh, which is uh, applicable to the code of conduct section that says don't circumvent restrictions on the software. And so these are all basically fine. These are the kinds of things that you'd see in a generalized software development agreement or other software uh, as a service type agreement that says you're not going to go and violate their security protocols. You're not going to break the thing. You're not going to break into it. And that's very normal. That's, That's pretty standard for something along these lines. Then we get into item seven, harmful behavior that has no place on Xbox. And this is what the code of conduct says. Don't engage in activity that is harmful to you the services, or others. And then the examples they give in the Code of Conduct are transmitting viruses, stalking, posting terrorist content, communicating hate speech, 
or advocating violence against others. But let's see what the Xbox community standards actually do to this. They say, um, since competition is best when it's fair, a level playing field is one of the most important requirements for gaming. When people cheat, use exploits, or otherwise tamper with hardware or software to gain a competitive advantage, it ruins the experience for everyone. Because of this, cheating, tampering, and the use of exploits is never acceptable on Xbox Live. Like, never. And one of the things that I've always reflected on is this notion of exploits, right? That there's something that the game developer has in their game that people can find when they're min-maxing their characters, especially in games-as-a-service games, that can advantage them in some fashion. The main example I use of this is the, the Destiny Loot Cave. And if you weren't in Destiny at the beginning, in the very first version of that game, uh, the specific drops for loot uh, were maybe a little bit hard to get. And there was a cave that you could stand in front of that had an enemy spawn timer that was short enough that you could just shoot into this cave for an hour or two hours or five hours and then go and collect the loot that had dropped out and hit 100 enemies in a very easy way with a group and collect loot on a much faster, uh, a much faster basis than the developer had originally intended. Now, they patched it out, but the question of whether or not that's an exploit uh, is one that I've consistently thought about. And I think most people would say that it is an exploit, that that would be defined as an exploit. It wasn't the way the developers intended for the game to be played, but it was a perfectly legitimate way to play it. The players noted that this, this cave had this short spawn timer. They had the guns to take them out. And if you worked in a group, you could get a lot of loot in a very fast time frame. And then they patched it out. But I would have been offended, I think, if that loot cave in Destiny had resulted in bans or suspensions or someone else getting penalized for essentially finding a place where the developer had maybe not thought through the full implications of the game that they had developed. And i am always been on the opinion that those kinds of exploits that are entirely natural, that don't use a hardware solution, that don't use a software solution, and we can get into whether or not glitching outside of a map is okay and those kinds of things, but that if you're otherwise within the play of the game and you're just using the rules in a way that is advantageous, to me, that's like playing a deck builder or a card game and finding a really good combo that works much better than the developers or the designers had ever really even contemplated, and then they can fix it later, uh, but that it's not something that is harmful and it's not something that should be looked down upon because, frankly, I think to some extent, and certainly for some players, that's part of the fun is figuring out where the weaknesses in the development is, where the weaknesses in the combination of powers and skills and geography or what have you is, and figuring out how to min-max in that kind of fast uh, fast time frame. Personally, for me, I just liked seeing all the loot sitting there in the cave. That was always fun, um, but I'm not really a min-maxer. I'm more of an explorer type, and so I don't really do these kinds of things very often. But what Xbox Live has said here and the things that I've highlighted in the bullets are you can't use a glitch that lets your character outside of a multiplayer map. And again, that's pretty gray area, right? Whenever you're outside of a multiplayer map and you've glitched out and they can't shoot you and you can shoot them, that's not fun for anybody. I do think it's useful to highlight those areas for developers to say, hey, you need to clean up uh, this uh, collision point or whatever it is that's allowing people to get outside the map. Uh, but it's not fun for anybody, and so I'm generally amenable to at least that being frowned upon uh, if maybe not resulting in outright suspensions. You can't try to circumvent in-game economies through money drop lobbies, which presumably are instances where you've got some kind of benefit from controlling the entire population of a lobby that can do certain things, that can get everybody more money or gems or weapons or what have you faster than you might otherwise do so. You can't use exploits to duplicate in-game items, and you can't intentionally team-kill other players. Uh, now, intentionally team-killing other players, I'm not sure helps anybody. I'm not sure that's an ex exploit entirely, but it's certainly unfun. So you see what Microsoft is, is trying to get at here, but you also see how these things wind up being not terribly good ways to use laws or rules or contract terms. This says activity that is harmful to you, the services, or others... Uh, and it's really designed to be real-world harmful more than it is team kills and things of that nature. And so it's a kind of poor fit. Now, it's not as bad of a fit as what we're about to see, which is piracy and unauthorized use. First, they have a little disclaimer about the law and about how piracy shouldn't be laughed about. Pirating software is not a victimless crime. It robs game providers of revenue that funds games and add-ons that people want to play. Accessing or using content in inappropriate ways can contribute to fraud and spoil great experiences for other players, sapping the magic of Xbox Live. 
By using games and game content only in the ways intended, you help maintain a vibrant community for content creators and fellow players alike. Now, this was the actual area that was flagged for me on my social media to discuss. And that's the, the highlighted item that I've got here, which is that Xbox has said, for example, don't play a game before its release date. Now, that is a fascinating item because as we've talked about on this channel, if a game is released before its release date, if it's legitimate, if you didn't steal it from the back of a truck or work in the warehouse and steal a copy from Activision or whomever, then you bought it from some mom and pop shop or even a Walmart or, or wherever you buy your video games that released the game early. You have the disc, you put it in the system and provided it isn't server based, which is frankly a kind of control for this kind of thing nowadays. And you can access the game, the license that's in the game that you click through uh, or that's on the back of the box will generally not have a date specified for when you can first access it. And so that game is yours and you should be permitted to play it. What Xbox is saying is that not only do you need to be cognizant of whatever the developer slash publisher's release date of the game is, which won't necessarily be obvious to you if you're a casual game purchaser and you walk into the store and you get something a week early that you didn't know wasn't supposed to be out. But if you put that in your system and you play it, Xbox reserves the right to penalize you for that play, to penalize you for a game that even the publisher itself has probably in its documentation licensed to you uh, on the basis uh, of the fact that you own that incidental copy of the of the game. Now, to highlight the issues there, I pulled up the Electronic Arts uh, EULA, their legal terms, and this is not a particularly svelte way to draft these kinds of things. But you see here they've got a general uh, EULA that applies to PlayStation 4 and Xbox One and Nintendo Switch, which requires their players to accept the EA user agreement, which we could click through, but it's not important to what we're discussing here, their privacy agreement, and that they need to have an internet connection, the players do, an EA account, and the applicable platform account, which may be required to access online features and any additional content. That basically rolls whatever Microsoft says about Xbox Live, as well as whatever Sony says about PlayStation Network and their infrastructure, into the license arrangement that you're entering into with Electronic Arts. So even though the Electronic Arts license doesn't say that you necessarily can't play something before its intended release date, by Xbox adding in this kind of conceptual uh, comment about playing a game before its release date being unauthorized use, it's essentially kind of reverse bounced back into being incorporated into whatever the publisher's license is for the game in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I would be very, very surprised if this concept were ever uh, imposed on anyone, uh, but it's possible that some publisher somewhere could get angry enough about what has been uh, sold by some store somewhere that they could come after, uh, that they could come after a, a player or that they could ask Xbox to come after a player on their behalf. And so when you get into those situations, I never like to see something like this uh, because it is something that looks to me like it's a potential problem. And again, the code of conduct doesn't cover this kind of thing at all. The real, the real rule is don't engage in activity that is harmful to you, the services, or others. Uh, and this is in no way something that easily falls under that blanket. You have to really torture the language to come up with a way that playing a game that is sold to you early on a legitimate sale that you paid money for is harmful to uh, the publisher, maybe. Harmful to somebody that's trying to avoid spoilers, maybe. Uh, but those don't rise to the level of changing the code of conduct in the services agreement that you've agreed to. Uh, and that to, me, that, to me, is a problem. That's something that I would want to uh, change if I were Microsoft and if I were Xbox. I would rethink this in particular along with some of the things we talked about with respect to fraud. You also see a concept here that you can't damage Microsoft, Xbox, or its customers. Again, showing tutorials how to financially exploit Xbox. Outside of directly stealing from Xbox, it's unclear what exploit means there. Uh, you know, if you tell somebody exactly how to follow Amazon sales in order to get discounted Xbox Live cards and use them to uh, retain 10 or 20% of the Xbox Live price for a year, is that financially exploiting Xbox. Uh, 
See, these areas are very broad. Xbox wants them to be very broad so that they can impose them on people. Uh, but frankly, I, I don't like them written this broadly, and I don't think it empowers players in any respect. It just allows Xbox to cause more difficulty for players that, for some other reason, in all likelihood, they don't like already. Finally, we get to uh, 8, 9, and 10. In, in 8, we've got respect the rights of others. And the actual code of conduct is don't infringe upon the rights of others. Examples, unauthorized sharing of copyrighted music or material, resale or distribution of Bing maps or photographs. This is designed to be don't uh, use other people's intellectual property in a manner that is illegal. But what they've actually put here is don't disclose the surprise ending to a new game or leak game content before an important announcement. Now that last one might sound, oh, well, they might have an NDA or they might have other obligations. But the actual first bullet says something that's legitimate, which is you don't use someone's intellectual property in an unauthorized way. So leaking game content is different. Leaking game content is, I read the Jason Schreier article about something that I shouldn't know about, about the next Assassin's Creed. And so I discuss it on Xbox Live in some manner, maybe even in a voice chat uh, on Battlefield 1 or what have you. Or I disclose the surprise ending to a new game. And that is a violation of the Xbox community standards for unauthorized use of intellectual property. Um, yeah, no, it's not. Uh, you need another rule to enforce these kinds of things. You need another code of conduct. You need another contract. Uh, and while you probably aren't in the best position to fight Xbox if they've made a determination on this, I will tell you from a virtual legality standard, from this lawyer's standard, that this type of thing is not included in the current code of conduct at all. And the fact that they interpreted it that way is a wrongful interpretation and not something that should, in a perfect world, be held to bind uh, the players on the Xbox Live environment uh, or in the video games that the Xbox Live environment allows to be accessed. Uh, they've got respect the privacy of others. They've got be a force for good even when others aren't. And uh, those are... Uh, not really significant rules. They're mostly what um, the code of conduct says. It says don't engage in activity that violates the privacy of others and don't help others break the rules. Uh, you know, so you don't, you're not allowed to share links to websites that promote activities that break the rules. Uh, don't do things that are bad, essentially. And those are okay. Again, they broaden out the code of conduct from where it was initially intended. And then we get another more, a little bit of corporate doublespeak. So here are the consequences. And this is why this video is important. You know, it's Xbox Live. All these system providers, all these platform providers have always had restrictions on how you can access them and how you can use them. And that's fine. And it's something to be expected. And as I said in the midpoint of this video, I think it's a good thing because myself, frankly, haven't enjoyed a number of uh, internet online experiences on the Xbox Live service, uh, on the PlayStation service, and it would be great if they could come up with a way to clean it up. This is the wrong way, though. This is imposing what are existing rules and trying to reframe them as what you want them to do rather than what they already do. And as the platform provider, they should have just had another separate Xbox Live contract to cover these new things uh, so that people could determine for themselves uh, whether or not they were okay with the new terms rather than just saying this is what you'd always agreed to and we're just interpreting it this way now. But in terms of doublespeak, they say we're not out to punish, but rather to protect everyone's experience. Every suspension or other corrective action aims only to show what was wrong and what can be learned from a situation. When suspensions end, we welcome players back so they can contribute to Xbox Live in positive ways. We know people make mistakes, and we believe lapses in judgment can be significant opportunities for growth. I think, again, they want to have the Xbox Live platform be a cleaner, more family-friendly, more inviting place. And so I think their, their hearts are in the right place. Uh, but to characterize this set of rules as we're not out to punish is a little bit disingenuous. And when you get to the bottom line, it says for repeat or severe offenses, again, noting that severe isn't itself defined, we may permanently suspend a profile or device if we can no longer trust it due to a severe violation or if our attempts to correct repeated negative behaviors are unsuccessful. So they get to determine whether something is severe. They get to determine whether something is repeated. They get to determine whether there's a violation of these rules, which are all new uh, in and of themselves. And what's the effect of that if they do decide to permanently suspend a profile or device? Under permanent suspension, the owner of the suspended profile forfeits all licenses 
for games and other content, gold membership time, and Microsoft account balances. You put $200 in your Microsoft account, it is gone. If we determine that you hired someone to help you get better at Fortnite and that was a severe violation, you have 100 or 200 or 300 games that you bought digitally that are on Xbox Live and you decide to play that cool new CD Projekt Red game a week before it came out, even if you didn't know about it, there's no intent requirement read into these rules, we can decide that's a severe violation because CD Projekt is pressing on us to make it a violation of this type, and you could lose all your licenses to those 100, 200, or 300 games. This is real serious business, especially as we move forward to a digital games future. And this is the kind of thing where I think Ross Scott and Accursed Farms is exactly right to say, hey, game companies are not necessarily doing the right thing and they have too much power here. And at bare minimum, people need to be aware that this is in fact the state of play, that the game companies can take away everything you've invested in their ecosystem for what are entirely ambiguous, self-determined violations of their own policies, which they can change at the drop of a hat by reinterpreting the existing contract that you've entered into with them in ways that don't always make sense. As we've talked about in this video, there are a number of areas, especially in respect to fraud and especially in respect of unauthorized use and access that don't follow along with what the code of conduct actually said that you entered into when you, when you signed up for your Xbox account. And that's an area of concern. And it should be an area of concern for everybody. And the games journalists of the world need to get Microsoft on the record for these kinds of things. They need to have commitments that they won't be using these in a way that violates people's, uh, not exactly rights, because this is a, uh, this is a private uh, account, this is a private infrastructure, but that it won't violate people's expectations of what it is that they own, what they have the rights to, what they can do and what they can't do, and that they need to, be, they need to have their feet held to the fire in order to make sure that this doesn't go too far. And so that's why when I was uh, asked to look at this issue, and again, I was looked, asked to look at this issue primarily with respect to whether I thought it was okay that Microsoft was banning the ability of players to play a game early, especially when they have no other reason to know that it was released early, uh, and whether or not I thought that was okay. I thought it was useful to go over this entire thing because of how broad it is, because of the nature of how it relates to the code of conduct that actually is the legal document that people have entered into, and what the end result of it is. And I think it's worthwhile to note, it's worthwhile for people to reflect on, and I hope I did that for you a little bit in this episode of Virtual Legality, uh, because I think it is an important issue, and it's going to become even more important as the electronic arts of the world move more towards conversational basis and soft launches and early access, and as we move into the age of the influencer and people are being told what to like and what not to like in a very different marketing environment, I think we're moving into a game industry that looks very different than it did even 10 years ago, and paying attention to contract terms like these are very, very important. Uh, and so that's what I really wanted to say on this episode of Virtual Legality. Uh, if you like this episode, please do like, please subscribe. I'm talking about these kinds of things all the time. I'm talking about information technology and software. I'm responding to folks about games as a service and their fraud claims. I'm talking about pop culture like Avengers and Game of Thrones. In general, if you've never followed a law firm YouTube site or podcast, now is the one to follow uh, because we talk about a lot of fun stuff uh, and I, I really enjoy it. If you have a comment for me, if you think I'm wrong on anything, if you think I'm right, please do leave it. I love engaging with people in the comments, talking about these issues with them. Otherwise, if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you listen to it on a podcast service, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next Virtual Legality.